two more to go after this, but Article 8 of the EFCA Statement of Faith uh, on Christian living. And, um, oh, I was going to mention this before I read this, too. Uh, in case you don't know uh, about the group that we're part of, the Evangelical Free Church of America, uh, we're part of a group nationwide that's uh, almost 1,500 churches. Uh, matter of fact, uh, this week, uh, 800 ministry leaders will gather together uh, in Fullerton, California for our national conference, which happens uh, every other year. So I get to uh, fly out there this afternoon and uh, partake in that. So uh, I'd encourage you all to be praying for that conference. It's a great opportunity uh, for leaders to gather together, uh, to be able to be encouraged, sharpened, uh, and for decisions to be made. Um, so a significant time together. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's dive into Article 8. It was read earlier. I'm going to read it to you again. Article 8 of the EFCA Statement of Faith. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from His sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love Him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for the poor, compassion toward... I'm sorry, for care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. With God's word and the Spirit's power and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and in deed. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, that we have the privilege of gathering together here as your people today. And we recognize that we aren't only gathering here locally, but we are connected to followers of Christ around the globe today who are gathering in worship. And so we thank you for the privilege of being part of your universal church, all people uh, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and are seeking to follow him. And God, we, we also are thankful today for the larger family you've given to us, the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, thank you for uh, the fellowship we have. Uh, Lord, also thank you for these core beliefs that help give definition, uh, Lord, to our identity. And so God, I pray today you continue to sharpen us, God, I pray that uh, the roots of our faith would go down deep into Christ and make us strong. God, I pray that these beliefs would not simply be things that we believe intellectually, but God, we pray they would bear fruit. God, we pray that our lives would be lived uh, in, in line with that which we profess. So God, today we invite you uh, by your Spirit um, to be at work within our hearts and our minds, uh, to be doing that for which Christ died and rose again, conforming us uh, to His image. So please, uh, take this time today and uh, use it for your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, back in 1863, uh, Abraham Lincoln signed uh, a proclamation uh, freeing all those who were enslaved uh, in the Confederate States. Anybody remember what the name of that proclamation was? There you go. Well said, Don Wasson. All right, yes. <laughs> the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, famously um, proclaimed by Abraham Lincoln. Now, this proclamation, uh, as wonderful as it was, could not immediately uh, be implemented in places still under Confederate control. And as a result, um, in the westernmost Confederate state of Texas, uh, enslaved people wouldn't actually be freed till much later. Uh, freedom came... Uh, in that region on June 19th, 1865, when some 2,000 Union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas. And the army announced that the more than 250,000 enslaved black people in that state were now free. 
And this date came to be known as Juneteenth. Now, that has become the newest federal holiday. Tomorrow's June 19th. People around our nation are, are celebrating this day. And it's made me think, as I kind of come up to this holiday, what it must have been like uh, for those African Americans who were enslaved in Texas between 1863 and 1865. I mean, what must it have been like um, to have been legally set free, yet still living enslaved? What a terrible tragedy. Now, today as we consider Article 8 of the ESCA Statement of Faith, Christian Living, I start by mentioning Juneteenth for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, it's a historical reminder. It's a historical reminder of the need for Article 8, a statement on Christian living. I mean, it's a hard and terrible reality that many of the people in our nation who enslave African Americans actually professed Christian doctrine. But that's true. Many people professed things we know to be true that we've gone through in our statement of faith. They would have said yes and checked all of the boxes we've mentioned thus far in our teaching series. And yet they still did this terrible atrocity. Um, a few months back, I shared about a trip I took a few years ago to Montgomery, Alabama with other EFCA superintendents uh, where we visited a museum uh, that was at one time a warehouse uh, where enslaved people were kept prior to auction. And it was horrible to go through the museum. But what was worse for me was that right across from the museum was a church building where many of the church members worshipped and then came into the courtyard and auctioned slaves. And you think, how could this be? Like, how could you read these words, believe these truths, and then participate in that kind of atrocity? Now, if this was the only time in history that Christians believed one thing and then acted another way, well, then maybe we could just chalk it up to bad people back in 1863. But unfortunately, when we look at history, we realize, oh no, this has happened again and again and again with every generation a struggle to live out fully our beliefs in our lives. I mean, we find ourselves wondering, how could the Christians in Germany go along with the Nazi party? How could the Christians in Rwanda participate in genocide? How could the Christians in South Africa participate in apartheid? How could the Christians in uh, the South after the Emancipation Proclamation participate in segregation? Like, how can this keep happening? Friends, these are all extreme examples of what this article of faith is all about, addressing the separation of justification and sanctification. And we shouldn't sit in historical judgment on all these people. What we should do is be mindful of the tendency of the human heart, which is in all of us, the temptation to receive the grace and the love and the freedom of Christ, but not extend the grace and the love in the freedom of the Christ to others. So today and tomorrow, as we remember the historical reality of Juneteenth, we should do a couple things. One, we should be thankful uh, that God brought about freedom in our country. I'm so glad we don't live in a country where slavery is still a reality in that form. So praise God for that. Uh, we should also pray that there be continued healing and reconciliation. I mean, that kind of sin continues to have effects. It is not so easily wiped away. Uh, and then third, we should consider our own hearts, you know, how, how we could be tending to separate justification and sanctification. 
So that's the first reason I mentioned Juneteenth this morning uh, as a historical reminder. But secondly, and for the remainder of our time, I mentioned it as in somewhat a theological parable that will frame the rest of our time together. In some ways, it's a theological parable describing justification and sanctification. Now, before we dive into that, we're going to define some terms, okay? So uh, here's your theology lesson for the morning. Uh, justification, sanctification, and I'll throw in a bonus, glorification, all right? So let's uh, start with defining justification. What, what do we mean when we say in this statement of faith that we must not separate justification from sanctification? Well, let's look uh, at, at the scriptures. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, gives us this uh, kind of hallmark verse on justification. The Apostle Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, and here's our word, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is explaining is this wonderful gospel truth, and that is that we are made right in God's sight, not by our efforts to live a good life. For if we look at what the law requires in the scriptures, we would all agree if we were to live God's law Life would be wonderful. Society would be great if everyone did what the law says. If there was no murder, if there was no adultery, if there was no lying, all the things the law describes would be wonderful if life worked that way. The problem is we all fail to one degree or another to live the law. But what Paul says here is that Jesus is not just encouraging us to try harder. He has done something different. There's a righteousness now available apart from the law that we can receive by faith, that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, God is declaring that person to be righteous. It's a declaration. It's a status. It's as if you were in court and the judge says, not guilty. There's a legal declaration because of what Christ has done. He paid for our sins and is giving us His righteousness. So justification it, what it means is to be declared righteous by God, and therefore we are saved from the penalty for sin. We are rescued. Salvation, in, ter in terms of justification, is salvation from the penalty of our sin. All right, that's justification. But that's only one facet, one aspect of salvation. Uh, the EFCA Statement of Faith is talking about a second facet, of salvation, and that's sanctification. So let's dig into uh, this term here. Um, I've got two scriptures for us to consider to understand sanctification. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
You see, justification is past tense. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Jesus died in the past, and if we put our faith in what He has done, we're declared righteous. It is done. It is finished. Sanctification is the present tense of our salvation, that we are being saved in the present by the work of Jesus. So there's a past tense to salvation. There's a present tense to salvation. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, goes a little deeper into what this means, what this present tense of salvation is all about. It says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus, once for all sacrifice in the past, declares us to be righteous by his grace through faith. Now, we have the opportunity to live according to this new status. Now, we could choose not to. We could choose to say, glad I was justified, but then not apply that to our lives now, to live no different than we did prior to knowing Jesus. And that means we are not being sanctified. (laughs) Sanctification is about us being able to live out the status for which we were saved. Um, So what this means here is that sanctification means we are made holy. we're We're working this out in our lives. And then uh, it also means that we are saved from the power of sin. So if justification is being saved from the penalty, sanctification is about being saved from the present power of sin. We can live differently because Jesus is freeing us. Um, I lost in my notes, uh, Trevor, I think I gave you that Titus 2 slide, and it's a great verse, and I don't remember where I was going to say it. Oh, it's later? Okay, very good. Thank you very much. All right. I was like, it's so good. I'm going to read it again now. Okay. Hold on to that Titus 2 passage. We'll come back to it. So we've heard about justification, sanctification, and I'll throw in the bonus. This is not in our statement of faith, but it's a key aspect of salvation, and that is glorification. It is the future tense of our salvation. Uh, Listen to these wonderful words from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That just as Jesus came in a body once, he will come in a body again. The first time was to pay for sin in his death on the cross. The second time is to remove the presence of sin from this world forever. There's a future for salvation. And Philippians 3, 20-21 goes deeper into it. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. See, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have been cleansed or rescued, saved from the penalty of sin. There is no judgment awaiting you. Jesus has taken it all. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then God is presently um, rescuing you from the power of sin. You're learning to live more like Jesus in the present. But the problem is we still have a sin nature at work in us. We still have a gravitational pull towards selfish living. One day that will be removed altogether. How wonderful will it be to naturally live that which is true and good? To not have to fight to live as God commands. That's the future. when We will naturally do all that God says is good. Justification, sanctification, 
glorification. We will be made perfect, saved from the presence of sin. Now that we have defined some theological terms, let's lean into the parable for the morning. Uh, Let me go back and kind of reference our our opening story about Juneteenth. Um, What was the purpose of the Emancipation Proclamation? And this is not a trick question, okay? What is the purpose? Freedom, right? Freedom. They wanted people, all people, all people living within this land uh, to be able to, to live free. It wasn't only for the purpose of a legal declaration on paper that then could not be lived out in actual life. And I ask a similar question, what is the purpose of salvation? Why did Jesus die and rise? Now, I I think often we are, as good evangelicals, very mindful of the justification piece. He died so that we would be rescued from the penalty of our sin. And that is true. And then we're prone to think about the future so that one day we can be in His presence and when heaven and earth are reunited and all things are made whole. We think about the past, we think about the future, we often give little thought to salvation in the present. But there are so much written in the New Testament about what God intends for us now. That He has purposes for us in salvation now. Here's where the Titus 2 passage comes in, all right? That's right. Let's read this passage together. Well, I will read it to you. Please read along quietly with me. <laughs> Titus 2, 11 to 14. says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So much going on in that passage. It begins by saying that the grace of God has appeared, um, that, that Jesus in flesh and blood came. I love this shorthand reference to Jesus. The grace of God appeared in physical form in the person of Jesus. Jesus took on flesh and blood. He came to our world. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that should have been ours, and then he rose to give us life forever. The grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Hence, past tense, there's justification. But all of that that Jesus did is being applied to our present life following him. I mean, it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here's how in the present. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. And it goes on to talk about this life now being learned to live like Christ. That the grace of God is presently training us to become more like Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of God's salvation for us in this present age. His intentions for us is that we would follow Jesus Christ and become like Jesus Christ. So the purpose of sanctification in the present age is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that will not happen perfectly until Christ returns. But make no mistake, the expectation of the New Testament is that it is quite possible for our lives to become more like the life of Jesus Christ. And God is calling us to this salvation life. So, Let's consider a little further, what does sanctification actually look like in a life? All right? This isn't just a 
a vague conceptual doctrinal lesson. What does it actually look like in our lives? Um, the statement, our statement of faith says this, that God commands us to love Him supremely and others sacrificially. God commands us to love Him supremely and others sacrificially. So two things there, love God and love others. Anybody heard that before? Anybody know where that comes from? It, Jesus, yes. And it's the story uh, that Jesus tells or the interaction He has that we commonly call the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment. Where uh, This is found in Luke chapter 10. I'm not going to read the whole story. I'll just make reference to it. In Luke 10, Jesus is asked a question by, it says, a lawyer. Now, a lawyer in those days was a, a, um, a master of religious law. So someone very skilled in the Old Testament scriptures. And this person comes and says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I was always bothered growing up when I read this story because he didn't give the answer, or Jesus didn't give the answer I would have given. Jesus didn't say, well, bend down and pray the sinner's prayer right now. Confess your sins and you'll get to go to heaven when you die. Instead, Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? What, what does God want you to do? And the guy says, well, he wants me to love him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, yes, very good. Do this and you'll live. And I scratch my head and say, well, why did Jesus give that answer? It seems like he's just saying, try harder to be good. It is not. Jesus is showing him what a saved life, what eternal life actually looks like. See, eternal life is not just about quantity of life, but quality. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God is putting his eternal life into us. The eternal kind of life is a life loving God and loving others. That's the whole purpose of our existence, is to be people that fully love God and love others. Now, I'm thankful that this lawyer didn't stop there, that he had enough courage to ask a follow-up question for clarification, because he says, okay, I kind of get that, but who's my neighbor? He wants to know, what does it really look like to live this life out? It's easy to leave all these things at a vague theological conceptual level. And he says, what does this really look like in my life? And this is where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells the story about a priest who's on his way to the temple. And as he goes in the temple, he encounters a man who had been beat up on the side of the road. And he's very you know, bothered by that. I mean, surely this guy's hurting. But if this, guy, if this priest was to go help the hurt man, he would then make himself ritually unclean. But that was one of the laws, that if you're to go into temple worship, you cannot be, uh, touch something that is defiled. And this person was defiled. And so rather than defile himself, he crosses to the other side of the road and continues onto the temple. Now, you know the story. It says that a Samaritan, a despised person in that day by Jews, a Samaritan came, recognized the needs of the hurt man, and began to tend for to him, and then took him, put him up in a hotel, and paid for all his expenses. And then Jesus asked the lawyer, um, who was a neighbor to the man? And the guy says, the man who showed him mercy. Couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. The man who showed him mercy. And there's so much that we draw out of this teaching. Honestly, that's very convicting for me. Because when I read the story, I realize um, I identify closest with the priest. Um, I am, by living, uh, a vocational per, uh, religious teacher. And it is very easy for those in my stead, and maybe you would identify too, though you, though you may not be a vocational uh, a religious teacher, it's easy for church people to want to get to the 
church building and focus on religious things. We think that being sanctified looks like all the stuff that happens in here. That sanctified people must go to church a lot, pray a lot, read their Bibles a lot. And you know what? Those are all really good things. Those are things I hope we all do. But Jesus goes on to say, that's not what loving your neighbor truly looks like. Because we could do all those things and fail to love our neighbor. To love our neighbor means that at times we get messy. For the man to have actually loved God and loved neighbor meant he would have been defiled in the moment. And God's saying, that's what I want. But loving others is messy. When you're working with someone or a neighbor who's a difficult person, when you're dealing um, with interpersonal problems, um, it's hard, it's messy to get into the lives of others in the real places of life. I've been reading a book recently uh, called Invitation to a Journey, a roadmap for spiritual formation. And uh, one of the chapters in here is uh, titled uh, Spiritual Formation for Others. And the whole point of uh, this chapter is that we can know we're becoming more like Jesus when our lives are increasingly lived for others. Not, not just for religious things for ourselves, but for others. And I really appreciated um, a description at the end of this chapter. I want to read you a couple paragraphs, all right? It says, The emphasis on spiritual formation for the sake of others can be seen in the story of the Rescue Society. Along a reef-ridden, rock-bound coast, a small group became concerned about those who were losing their lives in the shipwrecks that took place on the reefs and the rocks. They formed the Rescue Society for the purpose of saving those who had been shipwrecked. For years, they risked themselves to save others, often losing their own lives for the sake of others. But hundreds were saved who otherwise would have been lost. As a new generation entered the Rescue Society, they decided to perfect their techniques for rescue so that even more could be saved. They began to attend rescue workshops, to bring in consultants on the latest rescue techniques, to entertain salespeople who touted the latest in rescue equipment. Before long, the maintenance and perfection of the rescue station, its techniques, its equipment, became the focus of the rescue society. One night, while the entire rescue society was attending yet another meeting to perfect their rescue skills, a great passenger liner struck upon the reef and sank. Hundreds of people were lost because there was no one left to go to their rescue. The rescue society had come to exist for its own perfection and not for the sake of others. We have this parable here about what is the church to be about. When God saves us, when He rescues us, when He calls us to Himself, what are we to be about? And it's this life that is lived for the sake of others. And I'll tell you, that comes natural to no one. And that's why we need the sanctification process, that God will be at work in our lives, changing us to be the kind of people who care for others. Our statement of faith details what this looks like, uh, not, not in totality, but gives us three snapshots of a life lived for others. It talks about care for one another. Um, that is, one another within the body of Christ. To be a person who is being made more like Jesus Christ, we live our lives for the good of those in the body of Christ. We love one another, forgive one another, accept one another, serve one another. We, we live this out together. But it's not just there. The statement of faith talks about compassion for the poor. That God has always had a heart for those on the margins of society. Our world um, looks down on the poor. You need to kind of pull yourself up. 
Uh, figure life out. Get yourself ahead in life. And Jesus does not operate that way. So the church, historically, has always been at the forefront of caring for the poor. Not just programmatically, but, but individually, as people are caring for their neighbors. They were to have compassion for the poor. And then third, justice for the oppressed. Back uh, this spring, we did a teaching series in Micah 6.8 about what, how God calls us to live, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And doing justice is a core aspect of the Christian life, that we are seeking to make right what has gone wrong in our world because God is a God of justice. And this world always will create um, issues of injustice where people are abused and oppressed. And Jesus cares about those situations and those people. So as the church, we are too as well. How does, what, what does sanctification look like in the present? It's a life lived for others, demonstrated by care for one another, compassion for the poor, and justice for the oppressed. Which leads to one last question, all right? One last question for our morning. And that is, how does sanctification happen? If that's what a Christian life looks like, how do we get there? Because if I'm honest, I look at my life now, some of those traits I'm not doing so hot in. Others I'm, I'm, you know, I'm growing. But how does this growth process happen? I'm going to list to you three ingredients, all right? And these three are essential. And they're mentioned in our statement of faith. First, it is the gospel. Um, we don't begin our Christian life by believing the truth of the gospel and then live the rest of our life by our own strength, all right? Just as we needed Jesus to come into the family of God, we need Jesus to grow as a Christian. And so we are looking to the work that Jesus has done on our behalf and is doing in the present through the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel says it's not about us trying so hard to make ourselves acceptable to God, it's about what Jesus has done for us. So growth never happens because of guilt, because we feel so bad about ourselves and are trying to prove ourselves to God. Growth comes when we receive the free gift of God given to us in Jesus Christ. We receive who God has made us to be. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are forgiven, holy, blameless, without fault. We receive this gift of grace, and it fuels us to live up into that status. So the gospel has to fuel our growth. Secondly, we have to recognize it's a spiritual battle. It's not just behavioral modification. There is an evil one who is against our growth in Christ. This is why we fight this battle with spiritual weapons, God's Word, the Holy Spirit, fervent prayer. We aren't just trying in our own effort to become better people. These are all spiritual disciplines. Taking in God's Word begins to form our hearts. Praying begins to avail ourselves of the Spirit's power. So we are practicing these disciplines to grow in Christ-likeness. So we need to recognize we're in a spiritual battle. We need to use spiritual weapons. And then thirdly, thirdly, discipleship. Discipleship assumes we're doing this together, that we are learning from others how to follow Jesus Christ. Friends, mentors, teachers, counselors, we are learning from others about the life of Christ. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, a student, a, an apprentice of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be a lifelong journey of discipleship. It's not instantaneous. Now, it's Father's Day today, and I was thinking back how I watched many movies with my kids over the years. You know, and as dads, sometimes we have to put up with some movies. Oh. Uh, other movies that are kid movies, uh, you, know, you kind of enjoy as well. Uh, one of the movies I always enjoyed uh, watching with my kids was Despicable Me. That was a, an entertaining movie. 
Um, and uh, do you remember uh, you know, one of the, 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 uh, the villain there? Um, what was his name? Uh, Gru. That's right, Gru. Now, um, I was thinking about this morning because my kids for Father's Day texted me. Uh, they aren't home. And um, they texted me for Father's Day some kind words, but then also sent embarrassing pictures because it's Father's Day. Let's, let's mock Dad. And uh, that's fun. Um, one of the things, they didn't send me this picture, but my son in, uh, used to always refer to me at times as Gru, which was not a, a compliment. And it was whenever I went out in the winter, I put on my, my winter coat, and I had this wonderful black checkered scarf, which kind of, he said, Dad, with your haircut and that scarf, you are Gru. And what does that have to do with this? Not much, except to say, <laughs> except to say, uh, the way that Gru went about his work, you remember he had this gun, the, the freeze ray? It brought about this instantaneous work in a person where they suddenly froze, they stopped. And it was an instantaneous change in a person. And I think we would all love it if change in the Christian life happened that way. I come to a service, I hear a message, whammo! I, t- I change, I'm different. And it does not work that way. We come here, we hear truth in God's word, uh, we read in the scriptures, we pray, and Jesus says growth is more like putting a seed in the ground. That seed grows slow. It come, first blade comes up, then maybe a stalk, leaves are popping out, eventually fruit. Christian growth is like a seed that grows and eventually becomes a great tree. And if we're going to be followers of Christ who are sanctified, we've got to prepare for a lifelong, long-haul journey. It's a journey of discipleship. God's forgiven us. He knows all the things that need to change, and He is committed to that change over the course of our lives. So as we trust the gospel, as we engage uh, this spiritual battle, uh, and as we trust the long-haul process of discipleship, God will work out His process of sanctification in our lives. It's why Jesus died. This is exactly what He wants to do, and He will finish what He started. Let's pray.